There seems to be near-daily examples of incivility in the news, from political divides to conflicts on how best to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. There are ample opportunities to ignite social conflicts. If I've learned anything from my 30-plus years in science communication, it's that no one has ever changed their mind by getting in their face and telling them they're wrong. Clearly, a more wise approach is needed when attempting to resolve social conflicts and balance multiple viewpoints. But is wisdom a fundamental and unchanging characteristic? Can we, in essence, be trained for wisdom? I'm Charles Blue with the Association for Psychological Science, and you're listening to Under the Cortex. To share his wisdom on the topic, I have with me Dr. Igor Grossman, Director of the Wisdom and Cultural Laboratory at the University of Waterloo in Canada. Welcome to our program. Thank you so much for having me. It's not often that a person can claim to be an expert on wisdom, but, ah. <laughs> uh, but what does that mean from your area of expertise? That I'm probably the greatest fool of them all. <laughs> well, again, I think there are many definitions for the term wisdom, but you're looking at it from more of a research and psychology perspective. So maybe you can help That's explain right. that to our listeners. How, how do you define wisdom in this circumstance? Well, in my lab and in many other labs in psychological science, we look often at metacognitive processes, so thinking about thinking, uh, things that help one make sense of challenging situations and make sense of yourself. So characteristics like intellectual humility, open-mindedness about change, consideration of different diverse perspectives, and attempt to balance them. And in addition to that, uh, often when psychologists talk about wisdom, they sometimes invoke this idea of moral uh, moral aspiration. So things like uh, search for conflict resolution or compromise if you're in a challenging conflict situation. Now, you and your colleagues have recently published a paper in the journal Psychological Science that takes a look at wisdom and how it applies to social conflicts. What precisely did you set out to study? Well, we try to train people to develop a third-person perspective on their daily events uh, to see if we can shift their wisdom, so to say, over time, so those metacognitive processes. So in essence, we did a randomized control trial pre-post design study uh, to see if we can increase wisdom via training. So you actually set out to find out if wisdom is indeed something that can be changed or it's possible to move the needle. Right. Why did you think there was a need to do this? Is there Was there an existing demand? Did current studies say that there seems to be a dearth of ability to change wisdom? How did you first start down this path? Well, there are several things. Number one, uh, it is interesting with wisdom that on the one hand, we think about it as something that we all want to have. So a lot of self-help books all claim to teach you something that's kind of related to wisdom, either that or money. I don't know, like one of those two, I guess. Um, at the same time, when you think about wisdom, you often think about the sages or characters, and it's very sort of essentialist type of perspective. What that means is that you really uh, zero in on characteristics and think, well, this person has it, and this person doesn't have it, and this person has it, and this person doesn't have it. And that almost conveys this perspective that this is either you have it or you don't have it. It's not a characteristic that you can really develop. And even though there are a lot of self-help books, most of them are really pseudoscience. 
uh, they don't really build on any robust, uh, solid uh, psychological research. And so that's why we decided to chime in and try to figure out if we can do something about it. I do often think of the term of wisdom as something that is applied to a, a sage, a distant right. person on a hill that you go to seek particular guidance from who are somehow set apart from the rest of humanity and uh, maybe have some sort of special knowledge that is unapproachable. You're trying to say that that's not the case, that wisdom is actually something that is maybe closer to knowledge that it can be gained or maybe like exercise, it could be trained. Is there a, a relationship between that? To many psychologists and lay people, when we think of characteristics associated with wisdom, we do often essentialize them. Uh, we view them in terms of this kind of individual differences between people. And what I find more interesting is the intra-individual differences, how it varies from one person to the next, because it provides some hope that you can develop it over time. Because maybe in that situation, you don't have it, but in this situation, you may have it. And maybe if you cultivate certain approach to looking at certain situations, then you will have it more in the future. So in that sense, it's a somewhat different perspective. And um, you can also say that this kind of sages, it's kind of wisdom writ large, this kind of big W, whereas what I'm interested in is the small W. It's kind of small incremental changes that can make a difference, but are often almost invisible in your everyday life. Focusing specifically on your paper, you look at the idea of failing to reason wisely when facing with social conflicts. Right. Could you give me an example of that? I mean, what is a, a failure to reason wisely and, and how are we perceiving those in society today? Well, you already mentioned that at the beginning when you talked about incivility and disagreements about, let's say, COVID rules, politics, domestic marital conflicts. It can range from... A big topics such as political topics that we encounter in many parts of the world today to small things like what time should I go to bed and uh, do I want to go to bed now as my partner tells me to do or should I you know wait and work on this important paper or this important project or watch binge on this new exciting Netflix show that I really wanted to see on my own. In many situations, we have disagreements. In many situations, we have different opinions. And for all of that, we may benefit from a little bit of intellectual humility, a little bit of consideration of different perspectives, and this balance and integration of those perspectives. I do want to touch on a second. You mentioned the term humility, and that's also included in the paper. And that is something that I often think about is separate from wisdom. Looking back at that term again, humility, how does it play into the concept of wisdom in this research? Well, the term intellectual humility, should be, let's, let's separate those two, because there's a humility in the sense of, uh, you know, just being nice to other people and not brag about your accomplishments, uh, kind of be the opposite of the former U.S. president, I guess. Uh, so there is that type of humility. And then there's the intellectual humility. And so intellectual humility is about recognizing limits of your knowledge. And that is often, in many philosophical traditions, one of those metacognitive strategies that you would 
use to better make sense of the situation that you're dealing with. Then in that sense, it's part of wisdom. So in that case, it's recognizing the areas where you may be deficient or have less expertise and that would just make... don't know enough. Yeah. Just don't yeah. know enough. Like to make those uh, gigantic claims you may be otherwise making. Okay. Well, let's then think about what you were trying to do in your paper. We had a defined problem and you set out to study it in hopes of solving it. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experiment? How did you design this? What, what were you able to find out? What were the real nuts and bolts of researching wisdom? Oh my, that's exciting. And nuts and bolts. So first of all, I'm a skeptic of experiments that try to, you know, like here's a quick intervention. I will, I'll uh, give you a training for five minutes and then suddenly you'll become non-racist or suddenly you will be so much better at self-regulation and it will continue throughout your life and your grades will go through the roof. So I don't believe in that. I think uh, we have to be much more humble about what we can do in psychology. And so in this study, what we decided to do is a somewhat different approach that is typically taken in interventions. First, we, of course, we have the pre and post design where we bring people into the lab, they reflect on a um, issue that happens to them in their life, a disagreement, a conflict, um, they write it out, and we look at their responses. Now, the next thing that we do is we let people go out back home, and every day they would write a diary about the most significant thing of the day. It could be a positive thing. It could be a negative thing. It could be different things that happen in their lives. And when we do that, we assign them to different conditions. In one intervention condition, they have to do it from a third-person perspective, where they use a third-person language. It's also uh, called uh, Ilyst language, so where you refer to yourself in the third person. So I would say, Igor, what is Igor doing? How did he experience this thing? In another condition, just a first-person language, like me, mine, how do I feel, what did I experience, and so on. And so what's interesting is that in the past, the research that we have done and others has shown that when you use this third-person language, it can boost in the moment uh, your self-regulatory, emotion-regulatory abilities and wisdom, including a paper that I've published with Ethan Cross in uh, 2014 in Psychological Science. And so we thought like, okay, so but what if we take this as a training tool where people would write their diary on different events that happen in their life? And then we will test if this has a carryover effect on the new conflict in which we do not provide those instructions. So what we do here is very different from other intervention approaches. We ask people to sample uh, different situations that they naturally experience in their life and apply this third-person strategy. This is actually taking that out into your real life. This is That's right. how I handle things field day. That's right. It's a longitudinal field experiment uh, for which my uh, students and postdocs wanted to kill me because uh, it's a thing that you normally don't like uh, doing because it's very expensive, very laborious, and uh, at the end, often nothing comes out. And, and But in this case, we did find something. So that's exciting. Okay. So now let's get to the big $10,000 question. What did you find? What were the results of this laborious but... Uh sort of more real-life intervention? 
So what we did is we looked at the open-ended responses uh, that people provided before and after the intervention. So we actually had people come into the lab at the beginning and at the end, before and after this month-long daily diary that they, they, they were doing. And uh, when we looked at these open-ended responses and then coded them for different themes, did they mention that they maybe needed more information? Did they mention that they need to consider different perspectives spontaneously in their writing? We found uh, an incremental increase uh, between the pre- and post-sampling uh, sessions. And uh, this was not a huge increase. It not, it's not like that people suddenly became... Uh, sages or Yodas or whatever your favorite uh, wise person is. Training for Yoda, that would have been interesting. That's right. Well, you know, maybe. Uh, Right, like writing in the third person is kind of a little bit, uh, it's it's not really typical. Uh, And we'll probably get to that, but uh, maybe that's why it works. Uh, It's kind of not really what you normally do. It's almost like Yoda speak. but uh, what we find is that there was a shift in intellectual humility. There was a shift in perspective taking. And uh, yeah, so we found some of those effects where people spontaneously start uh, describing new conflicts in, uh, in a wiser fashion, at least according to this common definition that focuses on metacognition. There have been several studies recently, and uh, a few that I've had the opportunity to write about in the past year that looked at this concept of self-talk. And it is putting your mind in a different perspective, seeing things from a different view. And recently, this was about food choices. So here we are in a pandemic, we're stuck at home. Gosh, going over for that extra chocolate chip cookie certainly seems like a good idea now. And if I were to say to myself, well, Charles, you could have that extra cookie, but You might want to think about springtime when you're actually out at the beach, or you might want to think about other options. Is there a better choice? Rather than just talking to it like, would I like it? So you sort of change (laughs) the the subject of of the discussion. Is that similar to what you're trying to do here, where maybe it's the changing of the subject of the question from an abstract person or a third person to a first person? Does that really shift what's happening inside the brain and maybe make it more impactful? Yeah, that's the idea. So like when uh, Ethan Cross and I started working on the self-talk, like writing about yourself or talking about yourself from a first or third person perspective, and first we found this for emotions and then for uh, self-regulation and uh, sort of momentary shifts in wisdom and now for other domains, the idea behind it has been that, look, when you're dealing with a challenging situation, you often like habitually look at it from a first person perspective at least for most at least most people do and especially when reflecting on social conflicts so you what you do is you often narrow your focus and this can be because you feel threatened or in case of self-regulation that you brought up because you feel tempted and you don't see anything else this desire and temptation overwhelms you potentially i mean for me it would be the cookie clearly i mean i can't think about anything else when i see that cookie just want to eat it And uh, so when you zero in on that cookie (laughs) or social conflict, uh, you don't recognize the context. And it's very hard for you to embrace any intellectual humility, be open-minded about other possibilities, consider different perspectives, especially if people you disagree with. Now, not in the cookie example, of course, but in the context of a social conflict. 
Yes, I think everyone could agree on the cookie. (laughs) Right. And so uh, there, what you really need, like what the third-person perspective and this kind of third-person self-talk does, or writing about yourself in the third person, as we did in the training uh, study, it helps you to go beyond this self-protective mode that you're in. It helps you to look at it from a broader perspective. And in fact, we have some evidence in this new psych science paper where the uh, type of narratives and the way how people write about it is much more about we and less about me. Well, first of all, the fact that we found anything was one could have bet that we would not find anything because you know a lot of those interventions don't work. And uh, but that's of course true for all of science. We did hope that the effects would be bigger. They were not huge. And they just want to emphasize that. But we also found a few additional things. So what we did, we also looked at emotions, for instance. So in addition to uh, pushing people to be a bit more open-minded and intellectually humble, it also apparently shifted how people reported their emotions. So instead of just, so this is all about negative conflicts, but instead of just feeling angry and pissed and upset, um, people who participated in this kind of third-person writing, uh, they were much more balanced in the representation of their negative emotions. And not only that, so what we did at the end, and we reported it in the supplements, so it didn't fit into the main manuscript, but we asked people, okay, so imagine now another set of situations, conflicts. This was at the end of the training study. And imagine you have a conflict with a friend, or imagine another disagreement with a family member, and now imagine a few other positive things. How will you feel towards this person? And then a month later, we got back to the people and actually asked them, okay, if you'd experienced any of this, and people said, okay, yeah, I did experience some of them. Now, so how did you actually feel? And then we looked at what people forecasted, how they will feel, and their actual experiences. It turns out that those people who are wiser uh, according to these, uh, and who experience shifts in their wisdom because of the intervention, they showed greater accuracy between the forecasted feelings and experienced feelings towards another person. So that's something I would have not batted on at all. And that was so really exciting. predictive as well, in a sense. Yes, yes. So the intervention uh, shifted, uh, aligned, uh, to be more accurate, uh, the forecasted experiences with actual experiences. Well, I'd like to know then how this can help us. Is there something that we can take away and, and harness this technique? Yeah, I mean, like in terms of the practical implications, I mean, of course, everybody can just start writing a diary in the third person. I'm not sure how effective that would be in the long term, because if you just get used to it, maybe that will become your habitual norm and you will just translate it immediately into your uh first-person narrative. I think like the general insight of stopping and thinking instead of like pointing people to their flaws, but like also consider your own limitations, as you pointed out, is a good insight. Another one is probably not to neglect sort of your inner chatters, my friend Ethan Cross would like to say it, and uh, to potentially harness it for self-regulation, emotion regulation, and maybe even wisdom. What's next? Are there other avenues of research you're planning on studying? There are many things that we are planning to do right now. We are looking at longitudinal work, a lot of the work on wisdom and 
on many individual differences has really just started examining intra-individual variability that I mentioned at the beginning. So how people change over time. So then tracking the same individuals and different experiences they have in their everyday life and how those different experiences may shape their ability to be intellectually humble or close-minded. And so that type of work is just in its infancy uh, because it's expensive and it requires you know, quite a bit of an investment. Potentially, if you look at the long-term studies, you will not even be able to complete them by yourself. You need really a community around you. So a little bit of longitudinal work. We also look at training and helping with development of intellectual humility. So I work with uh, several people, including my friend Nicholas Christakis, on uh, sort of trying to help uh, harness better measures for studying intellectual humility in um, developing countries. And uh, I also work on this from the angle of forecasting. I mentioned we found some evidence that this type of humility and open-mindedness can really make you potentially more accurate uh, in your forecasts. And currently we have a set of projects where we look at forecasting and wisdom. Uh, For instance, uh, we look at developing training uh, through forecasting both for lay people and for scientists. And so if you're interested in that, I would suggest you first check out the uh, worldaftercovid.info, which is uh, an, an, an sort of an integration of my passions for forecasting and wisdom. And uh, it's a set of interviews with world's leading academics on what they think, uh, what kind of wisdom we need in the world after the pandemic is over. Well, I'm looking forward to that moment, absolutely. I would like to thank you for joining me today. I have been speaking with Igor Grossman, who has been studying the ideas of wisdom and how that can be both researched and hopefully trained a little bit. So thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. 